You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, Purpose to Promise, we walk through the first 11 chapters of Genesis from God's purpose for his creation to his promise to Abraham. All right, good morning, everybody. Hopefully my voice will make it. If not, it will be shorter and everyone will say hallelujah, right? Um, we've come to the journey through Genesis. Um, we've, we're now in chapter 2, verse 4, is where we will begin today, and, and we'll go down to verse 17. But what we've done is we've come to the first what um, literary unit called a toledot. What is that? Let me read verse 4, and it'll give you kind of an idea of, of what we're looking at. It says this in verse 4 of Genesis 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So what we're going to find as we, we journey through Genesis is we're going to see that Genesis is made up of several different stories, tend to be exact. Each one of those stories begin with a toledot. And it, and it says something like this, these are the generations of. It, it kind of marks it off, right? So you, you can go right to Genesis 5 real quick. If you have your Bibles, you can look. It'll say the generations of, right? And then when we get to other ones, it'll say the generations of. So this is kind of a, a, of a literary marker within the book of Genesis to showing us that um, there's many different stories and, and they're kind of one unit. So as we look at this, as we walk through this, we're going to take several weeks to do it. Um, this unit begins right here in Genesis 2-4, and it ends in Genesis 4-26. So it's several chapters long. It's, it's a story, right? It's, it's one story. So as you're reading and, and you come to these markers, you know, okay, so now I have a new story. So let me read to the next one that says these are the generations of, right? And then you know, okay, now I have a story, right? Because it's narrative, and he's, Moses is talking to us in story form. Now, for this first story that we have in Genesis 2-4 to Genesis 4-26, I heard someone say a, a real good title just for this little story within the big story, within the whole story of the Bible, would be called Wonder to Ruin, Right? Because many of us know what happens in Genesis 3, right? Um, it's, it's a huge turning point in the whole Bible, even though it's only in the third chapter in. It's amazing we, we get right to it, to the third chapter, and it takes the rest of the Bible to, to explain and show us. And really what it's doing is reminding us all that God has done to save us, right? So what Moses is trying to do, what he's trying to answer, remember Israel is getting the story of Genesis, right? They're getting ready to walk into the promised land. And so what is, what is Moses trying to do? He's trying to answer to Israel, right? What happened to God's good creation? That's kind of the answer he's trying to give Israel in sharing the story of creation. And this specific part of it, the beginning of man in the garden and all that he's building the relationship with man and then what went wrong, He's kind of showing Israel, now look, God made everything good. Not the God of the sun or the God of the sea or this God, God, Elohim, right? He made everything good. And we know that it's messed up, right? Israel's past, they were enslaved, right? They had firstborns um, killed because of Pharaoh saying there's too many of them. All kinds of things happened to them. So he's trying to show them 
and answering the question, what happened to God's good creation? Now, I'd like to make one more observation just about the text and about um, what's happening here before I read the text and we, and we jump into what God might be saying to us today. Um, in that observation, we can find right there in verse 4. Something has changed. Moses has changed the way he's writing this. He has changed the words that he's using for God, right? Now, most of you have in your Bible, if you're looking at your Bible, you'll see that the Lord it might be all capitalized now, right? The Lord God, he's changed it. Before it was just God did this, God did that. But now it's the Lord God who did these things. Now, that's a, a change. What he's doing is he's adding God's personal name, Yahweh Elohim, God, personal God, to what he's saying. And, and this is important. This is a, a major shift in, in everything that he's, he's done so far, right? So Genesis 1 is over, right? We, it carries over a little bit in, the, in Genesis 2, I know, but that's kind of like the... The beginning, the, the introduction to the whole book of Genesis. And in here we find Elohim, plural, it's a plural form of the word God, and this God is the sovereign creator. He creates everything. And now as we start this first story, what Moses is doing is now, okay, now I want to change the name of God, and I want to show you something by doing it. By changing the name of God, and now I'm saying that this God is a personal God. He is a personal covenantal God, Right? This personal God who led his people Israel out of Egypt, who fed them in the desert, who made a covenant with them on Mount Sinai. So he's trying to, he's trying to make a contrast with the way he's using the words in, in the Hebrew words for the word God. And, and we designate them in the English as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the, the name Yahweh. Right? So in Genesis we have this contrast. Genesis 1, God speaks as the Almighty King, and He speaks as the Almighty King, and everything comes to be, right? But Genesis 2 through 4, we see a personal God. We see a God that forms the man like a potter, who plants a garden, forms the woman, who actually walks in the garden with His creation. So it's significant the way that Moses is using this to change the name of God and showing you a different characteristic of God. Now, Genesis 2 is not just a second creation story. It's just the same creation story, mainly of day 6, but from a different perspective. So if you think of Genesis 1 to 2, to 2 3, right, it, it's kind of like a 30,000-foot view. God, Elohim, the sovereign God of everything, He is speaking things into existence. And then as we turn the page, as we go to, to chapter 2, verse 4, as, as we begin this first story, this first Toledot in, in Hebrew literature, what we're kind of doing is, is we're kind of seeing day 6, like if someone, uh, maybe some of you have put like deer cams on a, on a tree or you've used a, a GoPro cam to, to, to run through the, the forest or to, to film something. That's kind of what we're seeing now in Genesis 2. It's a different perspective. It's not another creation story. And, and there's no need to start comparing and, 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 and running all those uh, scenarios out. It's just a different perspective. 30,000 foot versus watching a video of all that happened from maybe a GoPro cam, right? That was attached to a tree as all this happened. And although he banished 
man from this creation that we're going to see. He, he creates this beautiful garden for them to live in. What we're going to see and, and see throughout that although, and, and we've already talked about it, we've prayed about it, we've sang about it, where, where we fall short and, and God is a perfect holy God and, and we deserve his wrath, but God is also full of grace. And so we're going to see how God extends grace to Israel. He extends grace to us and he fills their hearts full of hope. So let me read the passage. This is going to be 5 through 17 since I already read 4. And let me pray and then we'll dive in. Genesis 2.5 says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made uh, to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden, Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first river is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of the land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gehom. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of the Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let's pray. Father, I just ask for your help. Lord, help me communicate well. Lord, most of all, we beg and ask for your Holy Spirit to work in us. So that we may hear your word and be changed by it. That we may hear what we are to do and what we are to believe... And help in doing so. Lord, help us. We need you so much. We are so desperate for you. We rely on you. We depend on you. You are our creator God. You are a God full of grace. And Lord, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So from... Parade Magazine comes the story of a self-made millionaire, Eugene Land, who greatly changed the lives of sixth grade class in East Harlem. Mr. Lang had been asked to speak to a class of 59 sixth graders. What could he say to inspire these students, most of whom would drop out of school? He wondered how he could get these predominantly black and Puerto Rican children even to look at him. Scrapping his notes, he decided to speak to them from his heart. Stay in school, he admonished, and I'll help pay the college tuition for every one of you. At that moment, the lives of these students change. 
For the first time, they had hope, said one student. I had something to look forward to, something waiting for me. It was a golden feeling. Nearly 90, listen to this, nearly 90% of that class went on to graduate from high school. 90%. See, hope is a very powerful thing. Hope sustained these students over many years of schooling, through failures and mishaps, through hard times and discouragement. Much like Israel, who spent time as slaves, who wandered through the desert, who battled other nations, who desperately needed to know why they should trust Yahweh and why they should obey all the laws he established for them. God answers them through this first story of Genesis by showing them why his good creation is all jacked up and extends to them grace that fills their hearts with hope. And maybe you're here today and you need a little bit of hope. Maybe life has just beat you down a little bit over the last weeks or months. Maybe you just need some hope. Something to hold on to, something to look forward to, something that will drive your heart to move forward. And today I hope, as we see in this passage, that we can find hope from the garden. Because there's amazing hope here as we take what is said and and look to Jesus through all of it. Because today as we read this passage, we, on this side of things, look through very, very different lenses. We have the whole book. We know who Jesus is. We know the end of the story. We know the promises that we have. So we can put on the gospel lenses and look at this story and find so much hope. And find hope in what Jesus has done. See, we have experienced the fullness of grace. We have seen the fullness of grace. And that is Jesus Christ, our Savior. So I believe what God wants us to do today through this passage is this. One thing, put all your hope in this life and the next in the obedience of Jesus, in his obedience. And we're going to see how that flushes out and unpacks as God is showing the creation of man and and all that he shows us in, in Genesis 2 here in these verses. It begs the question, right? If you're just sitting there today and, and if you're just being honest, it really begs the question, why should I put my hope in Christ's obedience? Why should that matter to me? Well, I think we see three reasons in this passage today that um, we should put our hope in Christ's obedience. The first is this, Christ's obedience gives us everlasting life. The second thing is Christ's obedience sustains God's place. And third, Christ's obedience fulfills God's command. Now before I begin to unpack, I know you might be sitting there and you're like, man, Joe, I've read this uh, a bunch of times and, and what you're saying right now, just not square up with what I've read, right? I mean, this is a pretty simple story, right? God made man from the dust of the ground, made him 
and put him in the garden to live in, put him in the garden and gave him a purpose to work and keep the land, and he gave him a command not to eat of a certain tree. That's kind of the story within the story that we're looking at here. It's pretty simple, right? Now, I could talk, right? I could take the place where it says that God made man from the dust and bred life into it, and I can pull out all the, all the theories that we have today, and I could bring that all to you and, and drop it in your lap, and then you'll say, so what? Okay, do you believe it or don't you believe it? Because the Bible says that God formed us from the dust and breathed life into us. I could go that route. I've read many guys, and it's there. But I think there's more there for us. Not so much that I'm, you know, seeing special things. I just think as we look at the whole Bible, there's more there to see and more there to, to believe. Or I could, I could even talk about the dignity and of your work, of your vocation, right? That, that God gave us work, so therefore everything that you do it, that is work, it has dignity because it comes from God, right? And that's there, and, and, and it's rightful, and, and I could spend the time giving you all that, but there's one thing missing in our passage so far, and that is the woman. She's not there. So although he says that you know, I made man, and, and, and you could think of it as human beings, right? But why does our, our passage, and, and we're going to talk about this tomorrow, as he forms the woman, she's not here yet. So I, I don't know if you can, I, I guess you can take that principle and, and, and spread it out, and we can, I could talk all morning about how our work is dignified because God get it, and that would be good, and that was right from the text, and that's good, but I just... I think there's more. I think there's hope here as we unpack and see what Jesus has done as we read this through the lens of Jesus. Right? And, and I really think that so many times this passage, whenever you get into that one verse about our work, it's always been used to, to label and to separate the man and the woman. Right? The, the man's supposed to go work and the woman's supposed to go do this. Well, that doesn't square with the Bible, because when you read Psalms, I mean, Proverbs 31, right? The, the woman, she works at home, she works out here, she runs businesses, she does all kinds of things. So I don't think that we could just take this passage and just me stand up here and, and unpack just, this is what it, you've got dignity in your work. It's right, it's good, but this is not where God led me. I just want to remind you of the fullness of his grace in Jesus Christ. I want to always preach Christ. That's what Paul charged us to do is preach Christ. So somehow we got to look at these words and look at what God is doing here and, and find Christ. Not find him under every rock, but at least look at the whole Bible and see how Christ affects how we may read Genesis 2. Or the whole Bible is, as far as that goes. So let's now consider the first reason why we should put our hope in Christ's obedience. Christ's obedience gives us everlasting life. 
Everlasting life. The narrator gives an opening scene as he as he's narrating what's happening here. It's kind of like an opening scene of a movie where the, the music's playing lightly and, and maybe they're going through a, a path or going through a forest or they're coming through a town and the camera's coming and, and, and you get the opening scene and the music is playing and Moses writes this, When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused the rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And then the, the, the music crescendos, and what do you have? Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So God forms man as a pottery maker makes a pot from a lump of clay. Adam, the first human, is fashioned for life in the garden, given a natural body for an earthly existence. This is what we're reading here. This is how man was formed. And God breathes the breath of life into him and becomes a living creature. Now, knowing the rest of the story, knowing our lives today, our experience today, we know that this body, this creation right here, does not live forever. It is not an everlasting life. Although it's given a command towards the, the, the end of our passage here that if you do a certain thing, you will have everlasting life because you will be continuing, continually eating from the tree of life, right? But we know that as we sit here today, Right? Our bodies are going to fail at some point in time. But our souls live forever. See, what I, argue, what I want to argue is Christ's obedience gives us eternal life. And to show you that, I want to, I want to turn to the passage that was read by Sam today, and just a part of that, in 1 Corinthians. So this is, this is where I, I, I kind of set these other things on the shelf and it's like, I cannot get away from this. So whenever we're looking um, and we're reading our Old Testament, and we, one of the, the tools that we can use to kind of understand it through the gospel lens is where is this passage cited or used in the New Testament? So we, we go to the New Testament. So what we find in this passage, this verse 7 and, and following, in the New Testament is when Paul got to preach this, right? Whenever Paul was like, I'm going to use uh, Genesis 2, right? 2-7, I'm going to use this. When he preached it, what did he do with it? Well, we find that in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49. He says this, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So he's quoting Genesis 2-7 there. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as, as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Was Paul was talking about in this chapter Christ's resurrection. That you have eternal, everlasting life. And in fact, he says earlier in that chapter, he's like, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then we're foolish because our faith is in nothing. But see how he's taken 
The idea of Adam being formed of the dust, and then we have a human body, right? And then he, he goes on to say, just as we were born the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In the new birth, right? Jesus says we must be born again to go to heaven, to spend eternity with Jesus. So brothers and sisters, there is great hope because one day we will bear the image of the man of heaven. And with his breath of life, we gain everlasting life, right? We gain everlasting life. It's through Jesus' obedience, his resurrection, right? His perfect obedience. He was only raised from the dead because his sacrifice was Perfect. It was acceptable to God. That's why he was came out of the grave and was raised. It was, it was God putting the stamp on all that Jesus did in our place and for us. His obedience gives us everlasting life. His obedience allows us to live forever with him. His obedience gives us so much hope. That it's not up to us. He is taking care of it. He has done it. Then we see that the narrator then turns back to the garden to describe it further in, in verses 8 through 14. And the Lord God planted the garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made the spring of every tree that is pleasant in the sight of good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to the water to the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. And he describes the rivers as the rivers flow from to all different parts of the land. This is interesting. The heavenly river represents the heavenly life. It's, it's flowing a living river, right? The river, you, you can see the river clear all the way through to Revelation is an abundant supply flows from Eden through the temple garden and then branches out to the four corners of the earth. It is symbolic of the spring of living water, the life that issues from the throne of the living God. Now that word, that phrase, living water, we've heard that before, haven't we? Wasn't there a story about a woman at a well who was getting water? And Jesus comes along and says, hey, you know who asked you to give, give me a, a cup of water, you would accept the living water that I have, right? So he's given us a picture of, of a river that gives us living water. Jesus answered the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked and, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Later on in, in John 7, 38, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We see the same river, the same symbolic idea of a living river, giving life to us, to everything that it supports. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So, 
in two different ways. First, by showing us that that man is is breathed, God breathed life into man. And then this symbolic idea of the river of life, he's showing us that our life is everlasting because of Christ's obedience. He gives us this everlasting life. And we should put our hope in Christ. Because through Christ's obedience, he gives us everlasting life. And then the second thing he does, he sustains God's place. Christ sustains God's place. When we look at Genesis 2.15, we see the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Right? So work is a gift of God, not a punishment for sin. Before the fall, humanity was given duties to perform. We we were called to work the land. So our job is not just something that we do because of the fall. Like if the fall didn't happen, we would would just sit around and do nothing. I'm pretty sure in the new heavens and new earth, we're all going to have something to do. Simply because he gave Adam and Eve something to do before in the garden. Before the fall. But what we see is, is by God's design, and, and it just doesn't make him like saying that he can't do this or you know, he could do whatever he wants. But by his design, a person is needed to sustain God's place, right? Because he, it, when we read, read the, the story, it says before the man was there to cultivate the land, it was kind of nothing was happening. So, so we're seeing that, that man is needed in, in such a way that... It was sustained God's place. And, and that's simply because this is the way he designed it. This is the way he wanted it. This is the way he designed everything. We see God establishing the concept of work. And specifically, priestly work. Because if you look, right, God made man, and then he put him in this garden. And in many ways, that garden represents and you can follow that theme all the way through the Bible also. The tabernacle, the temple, the holy place. Right? So God makes man, he puts him in this temple, and he gives him this priestly work. And that priestly work has been given to, to so many different people all the way through the Bible. Right? All the way up to us. Right? Doesn't Peter tell us that we're royal priests in, in, in 1 Peter 2.9? So what are these priests to do? Well, the, the garden being a temple, a man being a priest who keeps it, guards it, and works and serves the garden, the temple. This is the same thing that priests did all the way through. Right? All the way through the Bible. They worked the garden. They kept the garden. They guarded it. They, they served it. They did all that God specifically told them to do within the temple. Although we are still called to work, we are not called to to stay in God's place anymore. Right? Although we we do cultivate the land and and we do um, grow food and, and and we do those things, he's giving this charge, this rule, this responsibility over to Jesus. Jesus sustains all things. The Bible shows us that. Colossians 1.17 says, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. 
Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Because of Jesus' obedience, the Father gave Him all authority. Matthew 28.18 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So, not only has Christ's obedience given us everlasting life, but Christ's obedience, because of his obedience, God handed him over to sustain the place. So, what are we to do? We are to proclaim. We are now to proclaim that Jesus is, is Lord. That's our job. We are to go and make disciples. We are to teach them to obey everything that God said. Right? We are to proclaim now as God sustains everything through his son, Jesus. It should give us hope. That should give us hope whenever we turn on the TV and we see all these drastic things that the, the ozone's going to dry up and we're all going to die and, and the planet's going to blow up and all these things. There's truth to all that that we need to cultivate and we need to be responsible and we need to steward the land well. Please don't hear me that, that I'm trying to go against that. I'm just saying that, you know, to a certain extent, they extend it so much that fear creeps in and worry creeps in. But wait a minute. If God has designed it that, that first we were there, we were in the garden, we were going to cultivate the land, you know, naming animals, doing all these different things. But the fall happened. Now he's kind of handed all that responsibility over to Jesus. And now Jesus is sustaining everything. I'm pretty sure unless God decides for anything to happen, those things aren't going to happen. Maybe to the extent where everything's going to end until he comes down, right? That's, that's when it's all going to end. Yes, we might suffer. And many people have suffered because they've gone against the good, right thing to do to steward our planet and to steward things. But it isn't all going to come to a complete end until God decides for it to. And there's hope in that. He's sustaining all things. So God's obedience gives us eternal life. He sustains God's place and he fulfills God's command. Christ fulfills God's command. Genesis 2, 16 through 17 says this. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So many would say that this is the first covenant of the Bible, the covenant of works. Um, the original covenant between God and humankind was a covenant of works. In this covenant, God required perfect and total obedience to his rule. Perfect, total obedience to his rule. He promised eternal life as the blessing of obedience, but threatened mankind with death for disobeying God's law. All human beings from Adam to the present are inescapably members of this covenant. So, stop and think about that. We are all part of this covenant. Believers and non-believers. 
People may refuse to obey or even acknowledge the existence of such a covenant, but they can never escape it. All human beings are in a covenant relationship to God, either as covenant breakers or covenant keepers. Why? Because He's the one that created us. He made this covenant with Adam, a representation of all humanity. The covenant of works is the basis of our need of redemption. Because we have violated it, right? Because we have not perfectly obeyed all that God has said. And our hope of redemption, because Christ has fulfilled it, is terms for us. Right? So the covenant of works is the basis of our need of redemption, because we have violated it. And our hope of redemption, because Christ has fulfilled its terms for us. Because Christ has fulfilled his terms for us. A single sin breaks this covenant and makes us debtors who cannot pay our own debt to God. Only one human being has ever kept the covenant of works, and that is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that has kept this covenant. His perfect obedience fulfills the command. His work of the second Adam fulfilled all the terms of original covenant. Jesus is the first person to get into heaven by his good works. We also get into heaven by good works, the works of Jesus, by putting our faith and trust in what Jesus has done, in Jesus' obedience. They become our good works when we receive Christ by faith. This is the obedience I have been pointing us to all morning. Christ's obedience that fulfilled the law. Christ's obedience that never sinned and always did God's will while he was on planet earth. Christ's obedience that even though he was in the form of man, right? He was man, fully man, fully God. He was perfectly obedient all the way through his life. They become our good works when we receive Christ in faith. Everything that he did, it becomes ours. Everything that he did. So how in the world does this work? How does this work? Well, I heard a really good illustration how this works. Um, there was a king, and he was standing on the wall of his castle, and he was looking out over the, the land. And he noticed that one of his children, um, one of his young children, was picking flowers. And in the bouquet, he, he noticed that um, there was a, a ribbon that signified that um, the, the ribbon is like a royal insignia, so therefore those flowers are, are coming to the king, right? They're coming... To, to his his place, um, and so this young child was out picking flowers, and as he picked flowers, he was also picking out you know thistles and thorns and different weeds, and as he was picking flowers, right, and uh, he's just this child is just trying to please the king, right, just trying to to love the king and, and please the king, and uh, so the king saw that and. And as the child started back towards the, the castle, he, 
he goes to um, the child's older brother, another child of the king. He's like, what I would like you to do is, is when so-and-so comes in, I want you to take his bouquet of flowers. I want you to go to my garden. And I want you to pick flowers out of my garden. And I want you to take the bouquet and replace all the thorns and thistles and all the weeds with the flowers from my garden. Okay? And so the old, older brother went and, and did so. The younger brother comes and presents the bouquet of flowers to the king. Brother, sister, that's exactly what Jesus does for us. As we stumble and fall, as we, even as we work hard, even if we work unto his glory, right? Many times our, our hearts are not right, our, our motivations are wrong. But what God sees is the older brother Jesus, right? who took all the thorns and thistles out of our bouquets and replaces them with Jesus' obedience, with Jesus' flowers. So when they're presented to the king, all the king sees is perfection. All the king sees is obedience. Christ's perfect obedience. So it's a simple question today. Will you put your, all your hope in this life and the next in the obedience of Christ? Will you put all your hope in this life and the next in the obedience of Christ? I pray that you will, beginning right now. Shall we pray? Father, I just ask that you would work in our hearts. That you will help us lay down all the things that we strive to please you with. And just trust in everything Christ has done. And Lord, we many times know this in our head. And we strive to do it, but we fail. But Lord, today you have told us that we could still have hope. As Christ's obedience, as he fulfilled the covenant of works. That this is what you see as your child comes to you with what he has. Just like the little child with the bouquet of flowers. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who's just running out of hope today, pray that they would trust and rest in Christ's obedience who has done all the heavy lifting, who has fulfilled everything that God requires. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that has never done that, that they would set down all the things 
that they are hoping in, and they would turn, and they would hope in Jesus. We ask that you would grant that and move in their hearts through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.